Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me again to the book of Hebrews. Let me just say, in all honesty, it's, it's good when we have technical difficulties, honestly, because it reminds us why we're doing what we're doing and what really matters, right? You're, you didn't come on a church plant, for those of you who left countryside, because of the flashy things, right? We're here because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll meet under a tree with no amplification if that's where God would have us. And so it's a good reminder of what really matters. And let me say, by the way, we appreciate everyone who serves uh, in those realms. They do a lot to set this up and tear this down week in and week out. Well, we're back in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. And as we begin to turn our minds to that reality, I was reminded this week that one of the joys of parenthood is providing for the needs of our kids. You know, from the moment our children are born, they are completely in need. They need for us to do everything for their physical life. And if we fail to do those things, of course, it will be detrimental to their health and even their survival. And what's interesting, though, is particularly in those early years, our children are almost entirely unaware of their need for help or the cost of the provision for that help. But as they go through the different stages of childhood and adolescence into young adulthood, one of our jobs as parents is to teach them what their needs are and the cost of meeting those needs so that hopefully one day they can do that on their own and leave our houses. In the beginning, that education is over somewhat inconsequential things like laundry and taking out the trash and Little kids understand that they've been told to wear clean clothes, and so they know I go to my drawer or my closet, and magically there are clean clothes, and I put them on. But they don't understand how they get put back. Uh, They understand they're to put trash in the trash can, but magically it just goes away, and it's replenished so that there's a new trash bag for them. But, of course, we teach them over time how to wash the clothes and how to take out the trash, and with a lot of loving patient blood, sweat, and tears, over time, they began to do some of those things on their own until finally we send them out into the wide world. But we understand that even as they began to learn some of those basic things, there are other needs that they have that they're still completely unaware of or the cost of meeting those needs. From laundry and taking out the trash, we move to things like earning a livable wage and taking care of a family, and buying a house or a car, or balancing a budget. And with each new stage of childhood and adolescence, even in young adulthood, that child goes through a continual process of learning what their need is and the cost of meeting that need. And there's a sense in which that mirrors our spiritual growth as believers because at the moment of salvation, we, are under, uh, we understand our need, that we are in need of salvation, that we are sinners who can do nothing on our own to save ourselves and that the provision for that need is the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we understand that. You have to understand that in order to be a believer at the very base level. But then what happens is we spend the rest of our lives studying the scriptures as as God helps us to discover that our need actually is far greater than we first estimated, and the cost and the provision was far more costly than we first understood. We come to realize that, like a parent, only to an infinitely greater degree, God is aware from the beginning of the true depths of our need and the true cost of meeting that need. 
And then he sets out about the business in our spiritual lives of, of peeling back the layers of that need and that provision as he sanctifies us in the truth so that we earn greater and greater respect and appreciation for exactly what he's done for us. And in our passage this morning in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see another layer of that theological onion unfolded for us as we begin to understand that that our need includes having a perfect high priest, a great high priest, who ministers on our behalf for all eternity. Our need is so great that it would not do to have A moment of representation, although Christ represented us perfectly by sacrificing his life on the cross, that God actually intended for him to be our representative forever. Even now, the text says, he stands at the right hand of the Father, representing us, ministering before the Father on our behalf. And we look at the magnitude of that again today as we continue on in chapter 5 of Hebrews. Now, you remember the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. We're in this section of chapter 4, verse 14, through the end of chapter 7, verse 28. And we began at the end of chapter 4 with the application of this truth. Let's read that again, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we've already seen, this is written for our encouragement, for our motivation, as we enter into the explanation of the priesthood of Christ and The two reactions that are listed there are important for us to keep in mind as we understand this larger theme of the fact that as our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. And the two reactions that we ought to have immediately to the high priestly ministry of Christ is we're to hold fast to faith and draw near in prayer. And as I said last week, we've got to to do our best to keep those applications in mind as we work our way through the explanation of why the author is saying these things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll do that again today. We're going to hold fast to faith and draw near to prayer because that is the natural reaction to the priestly ministry of Christ. But moving on from there, beginning in chapter 5, he begins to explain why he's made such a bold claim. Why is the author so convinced that Jesus serves in this role of great high priest? The first explanation was in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. We studied this last Sunday, the role of the high priest. And by that we, we mean the role of the high priest under the old covenant, the, 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 the line of Aaron. What did that consist of? But the second explanation is the one that we'll get to today, and that is Jesus' credentials as high priest. But just quickly, let me recap for you where we left off last week, in case you missed that time with us. In those first four verses, looking at the role of the high priest, there were a couple of details about the high priest that were of importance. The first detail was the priest's ministry in verses 1 to 3. And we learned there that under the Old Covenant, the high priest's ministry consisted of two particular aspects that the author highlights here. They are sacrifice and identification. 
sacrifice and identification. The, the, the high priest, particularly on the Day of Atonement, would enter into the Holy of Holies, the holy place, with blood as a representative to make sacrifice on behalf of the people for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Therefore, he had a, a sacrificial ministry. Sacrifice was at the heart of his ministry of representation. But in addition to that, the author wants us to remember that the high priest had the ability to identify with those he was serving. He had identification. And in the case of the high priest, uh, it was a little bit different than Christ. It was a lot different than Christ in the sense that, yes, he understood the weaknesses of humanity, being a human being himself. But the author was clear to say he went a step further in that he actually gave in to that weakness and sinned, which, of course, our Lord never did. But nevertheless, he had this ministry of identification. And then that brought us to the second detail, which was the priest's appointment. So we have the priest's ministry under the Old Covenant and the priest's appointment in verse 4. And remember there, the key point is the fact that no one can appoint himself to this position. He has to be appointed by God himself. Aaron was appointed divinely by God, and those who followed him, his sons, would then carry that on. In the same way then, in order to prove that Jesus satisfies this credential as a high priest, the author is going to have to prove that he too has been appointed to this ministry divinely by God himself. And what we're going to find is that the author's point, again, is not just to simply say that Jesus qualifies to be the great high priest, but that his priesthood supersedes every other priest that's ever been before him. Now, with that introduction in mind, let's turn to our text for today. Uh, We will be looking at verses 5 through 7, but this section is from verse 5 to 10. So over the next two weeks, we will handle this together. But let's read verses 5 to 10 of chapter 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now in these verses, again, we're looking at the second explanation of why the authors made this claim about Christ. And the second explanation is Jesus' credentials as high priest. He's already told us the credentials of the high priest under the, 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 the family of, of, of Aaron. Now he's moving to the credentials of Christ and how he meets those. That's important to keep in mind because he's going to follow the same outline. He gave us one outline to prove or, or to the credentials of the high priest under the line of Aaron. But now he's going to follow that same outline to show us how Jesus meets the same credentials with one exception. And that is that he flips the outline around. So the second point he made last time will be the first point today. That means the first detail about Jesus' ministry here would be Jesus' superior appointment. 
Jesus' superior appointment, verses 5 and 6. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. He begins, so also. So also. He's moving gears now from the, the priest under the line of Aaron to the priesthood of Christ, and he says, so also. And remember, he's flowing right out of verse 4. And how did verse 4 end? Let's look back at verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself, the honor of being a priest, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. Then the very next words are so also. And so he's going to show us how Christ also meets this same credential. And he says it this way. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. Again, this would have been particularly important for the understanding of the Jewish Christians in the audience who were very aware of the prophecies about the Messiah as well as the credentials of the high priest. They're trying to reconcile these two things in mind. And so the author says, just like Aaron, Jesus didn't appoint himself to this office. In fact, Jesus was careful in his ministry not to glorify himself at all, but the Father glorified the Son. Look at John 8, verses 53 to 54. The Jews speaking to Jesus say, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And so, from the mouth of Christ, we don't have Him glorifying Himself, putting Himself in this position. But instead, it is God the Father, we will find, who says this about Christ, just as He said it about Aaron. This is the basis of his argument. He's going to point to two passages of Scripture. And this is important because, remember, the author of Hebrews is very careful to prove everything he says from the Scripture. This is not his own reasoning. It's not from his own mind. He's going to exposit for us a passage from the Old Testament that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are two Old Testament passages from the Psalms that he quotes here in this verse. The first of those passages comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and it's actually a passage he's already mentioned and proven earlier in the letter of Hebrews. So his, his thought process is something like this. We know that God the Father has already said this about the Son. The same God the Father also says this about the Son. And so if we affirm this truth, we have to also affirm this truth because both are spoken by God himself. That's the idea. So he points first to Psalm 2 verse 7 which says this. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he argued this when he was arguing over the fact that Christ is greater than the angels. You remember, he argued that Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus is God. He is the divine son of God. And so he's, he says, I've already proven this. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Psalm 2 verse 7 is a, a, a messianic psalm pointing to the, the, the fact that Jesus is the son of God. But there's another passage that's equally spoken from the mouth of God. And that's why he says this. Now, the translation here makes it a bit confusing. Verse 6, it says, just as he says also in another passage. When we read it that way, it, it makes it sound as if he's going to say the same thing in the next passage. But that's not what he means. What he means is, 
that he, this is true in the first passage, and because that is true, because God spoke it equally, this is true in this second passage. And the second passage is really the one that we're going to focus on because this is the point. This is from Psalm 110, verse 4. This is the quote. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember that verse because he's going to come back to this verse over and over again, especially in chapter 7. But he's introducing to us now the primary reason that he's made this this claim that Jesus is the great high priest. And it's because of this quote right here from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 13, he quoted this same psalm because this is a famous messianic psalm, Psalm 110. But now he's quoting a different verse to make a different point. To help us here, I think it's important for us to read the entirety of Psalm 110 in order to get the context in mind. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 110. Let's read all of it. Our quote, again, is in verse 4, but we want to read everything on both sides. So Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1. This is a psalm of David, and it reads this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He'll shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, there are several important things here in this psalm, but what I want us to focus on, first of all, is that in the first three verses of Psalm 110, which he's quoted earlier, we see that he is not only the Son of God, the Messiah will be the divine Son of God, but he also will fill the office of king because he talks about the scepter. He talks about his rule. He will have a throne. And and the Jews understood this. This was probably the more common way that a Jewish person would have thought about the Messiah. After all, the prophecies of the fact that he would be from the line of David were, were important. They were well known. Uh, even the, the Jews who, were, who understood that Jesus was the Messiah were looking for him to be a king, right? They thought, when is he going to take over the Romans and be a king? So the idea of the kingship of the Messiah was very common and understood. But here's the problem. Under the Old Covenant, kings didn't serve as priests. Those were two different roles. They were very separated. In fact, there was actually a third role that was also important at that time, the role of prophet. So there's these three distinct roles, prophet, priest, and king. We call this the threefold work of Christ because Christ did them all. In this one person, the Son of God, we see him functioning as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, the prophet's role was to speak the inspired words of God to the people. He was the mouthpiece of God. The priest's role was to make sacrifices and and to represent the people in in the service and ministry worship of God. And the king's role was to rule over the people, and he was to promote justice and to promote obedience to the law of God. And all three of these were separate roles. But the author of Hebrews has brought together now all three of these roles 
to say that Christ is all of them. He is king, he is priest, he's even prophet. Let me just show you quickly where Hebrews affirms all three of these. Christ is prophet. We saw this back in chapter 1. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Christ is the prophet of prophets, but also Christ is king, Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So there we have both the divinity of Christ and the kingship of Christ. And then finally, Christ is priest here in our text, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So by quoting Psalm 110, the author answers something masterfully that may have been in the mind of the people. How can the Messiah be the king and the priest? And he says, well, this idea is not unique to me. It's in Psalm 110. The Father said it before Christ was even born incarnate. This has always been God's plan that the Messiah would function as not only a king, but as a priest. And we can't, on the one hand, affirm this truth from this text and deny this truth. Both of them come together, and both of them are true. And so, he's now proved the appointment of Christ. Just like Aaron, Christ was appointed by the Father. It was prophesied of him in Psalm 110. But there's something more here. Because he doesn't want you just to equate Christ with Aaron. He wants you to understand that Christ is on an entirely different plane. And so notice the words here, the actual wording of the quote in verse 6. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever, it says. This is highlighting the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. Now, to be fair, Aaron's priesthood was to continue in, in perpetuity, but it was passed down from person to person because each of them died. They couldn't possibly have been the priest forever. The priesthood may have continued, but with many, many different priests. But God says of this priest, you, yourself, will be priest forever. This is the superiority of Christ. And this has great implications for us. And we see the Father now unfolding for us in inspired scripture, deeper layers of our need and deeper layers of his provision for that need. Because again, we understood at salvation that we needed a representative to pay for our sins at a moment in time. But God the Father understood that what we really needed was one to represent us perfectly forever. And he provided that in the person of his son. Not only did he die in our place, but he rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is there even now and will be forever. Now that is provision. Not just a, a one-time provision on the cross. Yes, our sins were settled in that one provision. But Christ now stands there continually ministering on our behalf. You understand what that means? It means the work of God is finished in Christ. And therefore, because he stands there ministering on our behalf, there will never be a moment, not one moment 
in which your salvation or your adoption as a child of God will ever be questioned because he stands there. You understand what it means that he's the high priest forever, forever. The security of your salvation and your adoption into the family of God is secure because he is there forever, always representing us. And he doesn't stand there re-offering his blood over and over again. He stands there as a representation of the fact that he said on the cross, it is finished. It was finished upon that cross, we sang this morning. No more need for sacrifice for sin because it's been fully and completely paid for. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so this high priest is the very son of God, appointed to this priesthood by God the Father. And that priesthood is forever making him superior to every other priest before him. But now we come to the portion of this quote from Psalm 110 that has excited the minds of Christians for millennia. Because here, he introduces a name of great intrigue. He says, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the word order here is the idea of a a fixed succession. So there was the, the priesthood order of Aaron, because those who were his sons took over that line of succession. Here, Christ is said to be of a different order entirely. And his order is connected to this mysterious character named Melchizedek. Now, the significance of this statement is immense. And it's the reason why the author is going to spend a long time explaining this to us. In fact, all of chapter 7 is basically an exposition of the understanding and application of this fact that Jesus is from the line of Melchizedek. His priesthood is connected in some way to this man, Melchizedek. But because the author dedicates an entire chapter to this idea, it would be wrong of me to steal the thunder of that and tell you everything now. So you're going to have to wait uh, a a few more weeks or months, but we're going to get there to chapter 7. I promise, and we will talk all about Melchizedek and seek to answer every question that you have, Lord willing, every question that we can from the scriptures. But but I do want to introduce this to you just to, to help you understand the significance of what's been said. The reason that this man, Melchizedek, is so intriguing is because his appearance in the Old Testament is unexpected, it's mysterious, and it's brief. Unexpected, mysterious, and brief. And, and, and if you take any one of those words, those are all intriguing in and of themselves, and they all come together in this person, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek it comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, it's the only place in the Old Testament in which we learn anything about him other than this quote in Psalm 110. That's it. Melchizedek's not mentioned anywhere outside of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 until the inspired words of Hebrews. And so this creates a mystery around this man. I do want to read for you the text in Genesis 14 where we, are, where we encounter this man, Melchizedek. This is during the life of Abram. And Abram's returning from having defeated 
a group of kings who took his nephew Lot and several others and all of their possessions captive. These kings came together and they took over Sodom where Lot was living and the the cities uh, surrounding it. Abram goes out, brings back Lot and all of the the spoils of war as well. This is verse 17 of chapter 14 in Genesis. Then after his return, Abram's return, from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That's the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He was a priest of God most high. Think about that. Verse 19. He, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. He now is Abram. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth. That is a tenth of all the spoils that he brought back from war. Now, that's it. That's all that the scripture gives us in this description of this man named Melchizedek until he's mentioned again mysteriously in Psalm 110 somehow that the the Messiah is going to be a priest according to the order of this man Melchizedek. So you can see the intrigue and why he's fascinated the minds of God's people for for centuries and millennia. But notice his his first appearance comes here in Genesis 14 at a time in, in, in... in, in the plan of God's redemption in which Abram or Abraham is the focal point. When you read Genesis, if we're not careful and we just read Genesis with blinders on, we can begin to think that God was only at work with this one man out of all the people on the planet. And certainly Abram was the man that received the promise of God. It was through his family that the Jews would come, that the Messiah would come, that all nations would be blessed in him. We understand that. God was working in and through Abram in a unique way. But then here comes this man, Melchizedek, and he's described as being a priest of God most high. What that means is he's a priest of the one true God, the same God that Abraham worships. And if we doubt that, all we have to do is look at how Abraham responds to him because Melchizedek blesses him. And then what's the very last line? Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth. That is, he he gave a tithe. Uh, This is uh, really given to the Lord through the priest. So he affirms that this priest is a true priest of God Most High. Notice also, though, that this man is a king. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. So in this man we have both, a king and a priest. And that, of course, will come into play as we discover this and study this in chapter 7. But that's all that we're going to mention this morning about this person, Melchizedek. But I want you to understand where this comes from and why this is so significant. The author of Hebrews picks up on this inspired revelation of God and applies it for us to Jesus Christ himself. But his point here this morning is simply the fact that Jesus was also appointed by God as a high priest. And he was appointed to that role forever, for all eternity. Now that brings us to a second detail, which matches also what we saw in verses 1 to 4. Detail number 2, Jesus' superior ministry. We saw his superior appointment. Now we'll see his superior ministry. In keeping with the same flow of thought, he wants us to be reminded again of the fact that Jesus 
perfectly identified with our weaknesses. You remember back in chapter 4, we we saw that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's going to return to that again, but now give specific examples of how Jesus perfectly identified with our weaknesses. And so the first aspect of his ministry is perfect identification. By the way, as I said last week, the author's intention is not necessarily to introduce something new, but to go deeper into what he's already said. And so he's peeling this back for us to understand it at an even deeper level. And he begins here in verse 7 with this description. In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus. So clearly this is during the, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something particular happened in his life. He's going to mention a particular time of testing in his humanity in which his identification with us supersedes the identification of the priest who came before him. There's one particular moment, of course, in the life of our Lord in which he suffered in ways that are beyond our imagination. Of course, that's during the time of his sacrifice for our sins. But what the author wants us to understand is that Jesus in his humanity felt and experienced the full weight of the stresses and the emotion that comes with the human experience of trial. Jesus didn't cheat. He didn't take an easy way out. Though he was fully God, Jesus Christ didn't spare himself in the slightest way as he paid for our sins. And that includes not only the physical suffering, which was immense in and of itself, but the emotional pain and stress that was included in and led up to his time on the cross. And the author now points us to that extreme moment in the life of Christ. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications. He offered up both prayers and supplications. Now, there's a connection here. Remember back in verses 1 to 4, the priest under under the old covenant offered up sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices. Here, the Son of God, the Messiah, offers up prayers and supplications. And the the two go together in a sense. And here's the big idea. These prayers of Christ show his identification with us, but at the same time, his representation of us. What I mean is this. Because Jesus fully identified with our humanity without ever sinning, it means two things. It means he identified in the way that he had to. He had to become a man. And yet because he did it perfectly without sin, that identification in his earthly life also became a representation. That means Jesus was living the life we should have lived. In identifying with us, he's living in perfection so that that perfect life can be a representative for us. This is Romans 5. Adam was our representative in the garden and fell into sin, and therefore all of humanity was plunged into sin. Here, Jesus suffered for us as our representative, having lived a perfect life, and therefore that perfect representation is applied to his people. This is the idea here. He perfectly identified with us in the sense that he identified and experienced weaknesses that are beyond our imagination, and yet did it without sin. Now, some have thought that this 
reference to prayers and supplications is just a general reference to the fact that Jesus prayed during his earthly ministry. Of course, we know he did that. He did that regularly. But I don't think that this is a general mention here because look at how he describes these prayers and supplications. It says, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. With loud crying and tears. Now, these words don't just describe simply weeping while you pray. The, 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 the word loud crying is a loud, articulate cry. It, it, really, it means to cry out. It's not crying tears. That's the tears part of the description. The crying is crying out, and it's an articulate outcry. That means this is not just a, a shout or a groan or a yell. It's a crying out in prayer. Articulate words are being cried out to God while shedding tears at the same time. This is a, a moment of intense prayer. A person who's intensely under emotional stress and pain calling out to God in prayer. That's the picture here. Now as we think about the instances in scripture that are revealed to us in which Jesus prayed this way, there are only two that really come to mind. He prayed this way in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, and of course he cried out to God in this way from the cross itself. And I think there are applications really from both of those instances, but here the primary idea I believe the author has in mind is that night in the garden before his arrest when he's crying out to God. And the reason I think that is because of how he describes the one he prayed to. It says he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And the instance in Christ's life where we have him praying to the Father about this, this impending moment of his death happened there that night in the garden. But what I want you to see here is that this is not a reference primarily to Jesus praying about his physical death. The agony of Christ as he anticipated what he would experience on the cross was, was not really the, the physical nature, though that was truly awful and torturous. But many throughout history have died horrific deaths for a good cause. And while their deaths may have been deemed heroic and even inspiring, they pale in comparison to what Christ accomplished on the cross. What makes Jesus dying for this very important cause different than someone else dying for an important cause for their country, whatever it may be, which I'm not minimizing that. I'm maximizing what Christ has done for us. And, and the difference, of course, is multifaceted here. But primarily, it's the fact that when Jesus was on the cross, he underwent something far greater than the physical torture of his body. He took upon himself, literally, the full outpouring of the wrath of God for sins. And when Jesus is agonizing in the garden and praying to the Father about his impending crucifixion, he's not praying just to be spared from the physical pain he's about to feel. He, he's, he's, he's dreading this idea of having even a moment of separation from the Father in his humanity, even a moment of experiencing anything from God other than perfect fellowship and perfect harmony. It was this thought that on the cross there was going to be a time in which he literally would take upon himself the wrath of God. I want us to think back to this garden prayer of Christ in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. This is a description. Then Jesus 
came with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I mean, listen to that. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Listen to Luke's account, Luke 22, 41-44. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, listen to that, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The author's point in bringing us to this moment of Christ offering up these prayers and supplications with loud outcries and tears is to help us understand that Jesus experienced in his humanity a, a, a level of suffering that we can't even imagine. Because what had him so concerned on that night is what he called a cup. It, it was a cup that he was going to experience. What is this, this language of a cup? In the Old Testament, the, the imagery of, of God holding a cup had the idea of a cup full of wrath, the, the cup of God's wrath for humanity. And what Jesus is, up, is so worked up about, why he's in agony, why he says, I'm in agony to the point of death, is because he knows he's got to drink a cup. And the cup is not the physical torture on the cross. It's drinking the cup of the wrath of his Father. That's what was so difficult for him to get his mind around. He understood what it was when John the Baptist saw him walking by that day and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus knew what that would mean. He knew what it was to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You remember last week how I described how sacrifices took place under the Old Covenant in which you would come and not simply watch the animal be sacrificed, but, but place a hand on the head of that animal, symbolically saying, my sins are now placed upon this innocent animal, and with the other hand, slicing the throat of that animal. A gruesome, difficult image. Understand that Jesus had full, perfect comprehension of the fact that in some mysterious way, when he was on the cross... The Father would take the hand of every child of God and lay it upon him. It is as if our hands were on his head to say, 
I will take the sins. I will take the guilt that is rightly theirs. Lay it on me. The Father laid our guilt upon him and then sacrificed him on the cross to pay for our sins. And it was that cup that he was agonizing over in the garden. He knew that one day Paul would write these words about what would happen that day on the cross, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The weight of that anticipation, just think for a moment. It's, it's, it's impossible for us to put ourselves in his shoes fully, but just think for a moment to be the perfect son of God, to have only known eternal, perfect fellowship with the Father, to have perfect unity and love with the Father, to, to be in that garden thinking, tomorrow I am going to have the wrath of God poured out upon me. That is why he sweat drops of blood. That is why he agonized in the garden. And this was the ultimate example of Christ identifying with our weakness. I would say this is the furthest that a human being can be pushed in suffering under the weight of a trial. And yet, it doesn't stop there. Because while he's under this amount of agony, a stress and a pressure that we can't even fathom, how did he end his prayer? But Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's because in his mind, the only thing worse than being separated from the Father, experiencing the Father's wrath, was the concept, the idea of disobeying the Father's will. That was worse. It was impossible. And so he said, not my will, Father. Your will be done. And in this, he was not just our example. He was our representative. He did it perfectly. He experienced this excruciating moment of suffering, and yet he did it perfectly. And we know that because of the last thing he says here in this verse, verse 7. And he was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his piety. The idea of piety here is his reverent obedience. He was heard because of his, his heart of submission to the Father. And you say, well, how exactly was he heard? Because he died on the cross. He wasn't delivered from death exactly. Well, he did die on the cross. You're right about that. But there was something else even more significant than that. And that is that when Jesus died and rose again, he conquered death. This is a reference to the resurrection. They've conquered death, not just this physical death, but what the Bible calls the second death in Revelation. The idea that, that he could take for us the wrath of God so that we would not experience the judgment of God, which that eternal judgment and separation from God is the second death. Jesus took all of that upon himself, rose again, and conquered it completely for his people. And that's what it means that the Father heard and responded to his prayer. He raised him to new life forever in true and final victory over death of every kind. And so Jesus meets this credential of the high priest of identifying with our weaknesses to a level that we can't comprehend, and yet he also, in that identification, represents us because he did it in perfection. And as we dwell on that, it ought to have our minds rushing back 
to chapter 4. You want to hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ? You want to be motivated to run to him in prayer at the slightest moment of, of difficulty and pain, of joy and happiness, sorrow? Then think on him there. Think on him in the garden, agonizing and yet agonizing and keeping his perfection. Think of him on the cross, bearing the weight of your sin and yet doing it without sin himself. You know, if you're here this morning, you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would admonish you to imagine with me, if you can, the Lord Jesus Christ there in that garden, agonizing over what he was about to do and taking upon himself the, the guilt of sins that were not his own. And then I want you to picture him there on the cross, dying as a sacrifice to pay for sins, a death he didn't deserve so that he could give the perfect righteousness that he had earned to those who would believe in him. Picture him there. And let me encourage you to humble yourself before a holy God. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Understand that that is your only hope. We have a real and true hope of salvation, but it's in the person of Jesus Christ alone and what he's done for us. If you would only humble yourself and repent of your sins, and throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And he will forever be your high priest, representing you before the Father. That's the good news of the gospel that this text draws our mind to this morning. But as believers, we ought to have an overwhelming motivation to respond as well. In the same ways that we have been drawn to respond in weeks past, Number one, let Christ's perfect identification embolden your faith. Let it embolden your faith. How could we ever doubt such a Savior? What possible trial in life could cause us to doubt the love of Christ when he has gone to such great lengths to save us? Take all the world's religions and their false promises of earning our way to heaven by our own works and, and throw them in a heap of trash and burn them. Because they are nothing compared to our Jesus. They are nothing compared to the Savior that's outlined for us here in the pages of Scripture. No one has ever done what Jesus has done, and no one ever will. If the trials and difficulties of life have started to cause your faith to grow weak, if your, your knees have begun to be weary under the load of the difficulties, just turn your mind again to Christ. He's been there to the point of, of the utter breaking point of the human body, sweating drops of blood in anticipation of the cross, walking through the cross, and yet doing it perfectly. And the author of Hebrews says, that one who did that sympathizes for you. That is, he knows, he cares, and he offers to you his help. Secondly, let Christ's perfect identification embolden your prayers. If Jesus Christ really knows what it is to bear up under the weight of the most extreme trials and yet prevail in perfection and then sympathetically offers you his help, what in the world are we doing not praying? Why are we so slow to run to him in prayer? Why does it come to us so late in the trial? The author brings this to our attention 
for two primary reasons. One, it's, of course, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would hold him in, in highest regard as supreme over all. But it's also to call us to depend on him, that having exalted him to the highest place, our dependence then rests upon him in him only. There is no weight, no trial, no temptation so significant that his arm is too short to reach us. He offers us his help. He stands at the Father's hand. Let us call out to him in prayer. The one who not only understands, but who conquered sin and death and gives us his real gracious help. This is the privilege of having a great high priest who is forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how can we say thank you enough for what you have accomplished on our behalf? It's hard to even imagine what you must have felt in experiencing the grief you bore that evening in the garden as you anticipated what was shortly about to begin in the process of your trial and crucifixion and taking on the wrath that we deserved. And yet we're so thankful that you were gracious enough to walk through that as a real human man, fully God, but truly human so that we could have salvation and hope of walking with you because of what you've accomplished for us and because you haven't left us, but you strengthen us day by day. God, help us to to dwell on these things, to be motivated by these things, and to be transformed by them. We ask all of this in your precious name. Amen.